listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So uh, welcome again. Uh, We're continuing our series about the Gospel of Mark titled Good News with Mark the Evangelist. And we find ourselves today in uh, Mark chapter 11. This is an eventful chapter. So it opens up with Jesus kind of entering into Jerusalem. And according to the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time we've seen Jesus go to Jerusalem. So this is big news. So he was announced several chapters ago as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the King of Israel, the King of the Jews. And so now he's come to the capital city and his disciples seem to anticipate that he's going to become the king. And so he kind of rides in. That's a wonderful story. And then we get to this bit that we want to focus in on today. And it starts with Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says this. On the following day, this is following the triumphal entry. When Jesus came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf... He went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, that's a puzzling passage. Like, why would anyone go up to a fig tree when it wasn't the season for figs, expecting to see a fig on it? And if it's not the season for figs, if if the fruit's not in season, then why would you get so angry and like curse the fig tree? John John Calvin said, this is a very difficult passage to understand. Why would Jesus be so angry about figs? Uh, St. Augustine said, if we try and read this literally, it won't make any sense because who in the world would be upset about a fig tree not having figs when it wasn't the season for figs. Augustine said, we have to interpret this symbolically. Like literally, it just becomes nonsensical. Now figs, we might, I might add, just a short note on figs in the kind of ancient Hebrew world. They were a very popular fruit. It was like something that was kind of a delicatessen. So there's a Jewish legend that the tree of life was a fig tree. I know that, you know, kind of based on John Milton and kind of an American or English view of things, we imagine it like an apple tree, right? Like they picked an apple. But in the Jewish legend, it was a fig tree. Like the fig was kind of the greatest of of the fruits. And we see fig trees kind of discussed kind of throughout scripture. And they're often talked about in terms of the blessings of the Lord. Like if everything's going right for you, if your enemies have been kept at bay, if you've built a house, if you've planted a garden, if you're not just watching your children grow up, but you're watching your children's children grow up, then you're kind of, you can walk amongst your fig trees. It's such a wonderful thing that when, they, when the prophets do speak of judgment, they often mention the loss of the fig tree. Like, you know, here comes the enemy, here comes the, kind of the foreign power, or kind of God's judgment. Like, here comes God, and we're going to be judged, and what's going to happen? We're going to lose our fig trees. And so Jesus comes, and he kind of curses this fig tree. 
Now, if we're going to follow St. Augustine and imagine symbolically what might be happening, we're going to have to keep on reading. So in the common Christian lectionary, the the cross-referencing that the church has done over the centuries, they pair this passage of the fig tree with a passage just a little later in Mark chapter 11 where Peter sees the fig tree and it's dead and it's withered. Interestingly, though, they skip over this middle bit, and I want us to pause there for a second. So we're going to continue reading. This is the passage immediately after the cursing of the fig tree. So Jesus has said, no one, has ever, no one will ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard it. And then it says this. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when the evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So I I heard this uh, passage often referenced when I was a child. This idea that Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers. It was often used in the context that we shouldn't buy and sell in church. Now, I was a kid of the public school system. And I don't know if they didn't take up taxes or if they took up taxes and just never spent it on education. But it seems to me that as a child, I was constantly having to sell things on behalf of the school. Any of you remember this? We sold candles. We sold cookies. We sold magazines. I was actually a particularly very good magazine seller. I mean, truth be known, I had one really good customer, Mrs. Calhoun, and she bought like every magazine. And that alone placed me in third place in the school. Didn't have to like sell to anybody else. And, and don't, don't tell uh, uh, Todd that he lived across the street from Miss Calhoun and he normally got to her, but that one year I got to her first and it was great. But in any case, I digress. So in the public school system, we give these kids these like really glossy uh, brochures, right? We do it with like Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts too. And you have to buy and sell stuff. So I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. It was, you know, rural. So I, could, I didn't see, like, neighbors very often. They were kind of far, far away. And my family, we're, you know, Appalachian Pentecostals. So pretty much all we ever did was go to church. So the only people I could possibly sell to were people at church. Except the church said you can't buy and sell in the temple or the sanctuary or at the church. So I had to be really sly, you know. So there's two, two ladies would always purchase from me. One, her name was uh, Magdalene, Magdalene Baldwin. She was an evangelist. And then the other was Opal Rudy. Uh, Opal and her husband, Bill, owned an appliance shop in the next town down the way, Chilhowie. And we lived in Marion. And so we would meet in the middle there at Seven Mile Ford Church of God. I did not make that up. <laughs> and so they would, they would always buy from me. But I knew this because I'd learned it the hard way. If you pulled out your little brochure in the sanctuary, no sales. You cannot buy and sell in here. Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers. Whew, scary stuff. I learned. 
You had to either wait till they got out to the vestibule, as we called it, that section just outside the sanctuary, or the fellowship hall. But then you had to be careful. Which, you know, which way did they park? Did they park out the front or did they park out the back? Yeah. So then, you know, I grew up. And I heard other interpretations of this passage of Jesus turning over the money changers. And I thought, maybe, maybe my childhood interpretation, even though it was kind of reinforced by some of our practices, wasn't the main point. And they talked about these money changers as though they were somehow um, doing extortion, right? They were taking advantage of the Jewish pilgrims who had come to the temple for the festival, and so that was the, the lesson. And they paired the idea of money changers to that last statement that says, uh, this, you have made it a den of robbers. And apparently the robbers were the money changers. But a closer look suggests that that's probably not the case. So just curious, have any of you kind of traveled internationally? Anybody ever been out of the country? And when you were out of the country, did you ever use a foreign currency? Something other than the U.S. dollar? All right, we'll have a time for you to come and confess your sins later. You know, you, you changed your money. What are you doing? Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers. Right. So we know it's not a sin to exchange your money. And if, if you work in the business of exchanging money, you would charge a little interest. I mean, there'd be some kind of rate for the exchange. That's also not a sin. So let me, let me kind of maybe paint a slightly different picture that puts this in its historical context. So imagine uh, you're a family and you're Jewish and part of the diaspora, you've kind of moved and you're now living in Asia Minor or what was in Asia Minor, today what would be Turkey at Ephesus, right? So you live in Ephesus and you go to the synagogue there and you kind of raising your children there and you can pray at the synagogue and you can kind of follow the teachings of the Torah in your home and at the synagogue. But what you can't do is offer animal sacrifice, which was a big part of the historical way in which your people had worshipped God. So let's say you saved up money and said, you know, next year in Jerusalem, right, we're going to take the kids. And so now this is one of the big Jewish uh, pilgrimage festivals, and you've, you've taken them to Jerusalem. And so you have your, your, your drachma, I don't know if they actually have, I guess lira, that's closer, Turkey. So you have your lira in your pocket and you go to the temple and you're going to have to, you know, purchase uh, animal for sacrifice because you wouldn't have brought your animal like with you all the way from Ephesus, right? So you, you pull out your lira, but your lira is kind of pagan money. You don't want to buy your godly sacrifice with your pagan money. So you're going to exchange your lira for your shekels, except when you get there, there's this rabbi from Galilee, and he's flipped over all the tables of the money changers. So there's no place to exchange your money. So those of you who have traveled internationally, anybody still have some currency from, from other places where you traveled? Yeah. That's something like a little souvenir, I imagine. Does anybody have a lot of money in foreign currency? All right, I'll have to talk to you, Fred, later. That is an exception to the rule. Right, so most of us just kind of carry a little. So imagine this, this poor family. Here they've come from Ephesus. They're all excited about celebrating Passover, except they can't exchange their money because the, the, the 
tables of the money changers have been overthrown. So let's say they have a little bit left over, you know, say mom and dad went there when they were in college or whatever, and they, they saved a few shekels. So maybe with a couple of shekels, you could buy a dove. Not the most impressive sacrifice ever, right? You had planned on buying a, a lamb or, or, you know, something more substantial. But, but let's say you have a few, you know, just a couple of lira, or excuse me, a couple of shekels left over from your last trip. So you might buy something cheap, something inexpensive, like a dove. But that rabbi, I'm telling you, that guy from Galilee, not only has he flipped over the tables of the money changers, he's flipped over the tables of those who sell doves. I'm, I'm, I'm running low on, op on options. So what am I going to do? All right, so I can't use my lira uh, to purchase. Um, I can't exchange my lira for shekels. What few shekels I have won't actually buy anything. But maybe I've got, you know, uh, cousin Elihu who lives over there in Bethany. So I'm like, all right, kids, stay here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over around the Mount of Olives to Bethany, and I'm going to go to Cousin Lehu's house, and I'm going to borrow a lamb, and he's going to probably charge me a lot for it, but I'm gonna, you know, I probably could give him my, my lira, right? And then he can exchange it later. And so the guy comes back. <laughs> he's got his lamb. He's like, all right, kids, let's go. And then, you know what, that rabbi who flipped over the tables of the money changers and flipped over the tables of those sold doves, it says he's not allowing anyone to carry anything through the temple. I mean, he's like LeBron James. He's posted up in the paint. No one's getting in. Like, are you trying to get in? I can see Jesus, right? That guy's not getting through with his lamb. So here's the question. If no one can bring an animal from outside in, if there, if there are no kind of doves to buy, if there's no place to exchange your money, at least temporarily that day, what's going on at the altar of burnt sacrifice? Nothing. Nothing's going on at the altar of burnt sacrifice. The priests are probably looking there saying, hey, it's getting kind of late. I wonder where everybody is. We haven't, we haven't had a burnt sacrifice all day, and it's the Passover. That, that would be like it being Thanksgiving and no one being at Publix, right? <laughs> it would be like Christmas and, and no one being at the mall. It, you know, it'd be shocking. So this rabbi from Galilee who had been announced way, way up north in Caesarea Philippi that he was the Christ, has made his way down, has ridden into the city, and has at least temporarily brought the whole sacrificial system to a standstill. And then it says, Jesus taught. Now, we don't know everything that Jesus taught, but Mark did record this. It's a mashup of a little bit from Isaiah and a little bit from Jeremiah. And the Isaiah bit says this. Is it not written that my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations? And then he quotes a bit from Jeremiah. But you have made it a den for robbers. Now let's talk first about a house of prayer for all nations. If we read too slow, 
we read it and it says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And we pause, not catching the weight of the full sentence for all nations. Listen, friends, Christianity is a participatory faith. It's not for spectators. It's not for folks to just show up on Sunday and kind of feel like they've done their deed. Christianity is something we practice. It's something we do. And the primary thing we do, we can sing, we can read scripture, we can listen to sermons, we can hand out candy on a Saturday to kid after kid after kid after kid, right? But the primary thing we do is pray. We talk to God. God talks to us. Prayer is the primary spiritual and theological activity. When we cease praying, we end up practicing some kind of civic activity that is actually a thinly veiled atheism. If you think you can just go about your life doing what you think is right and kind of raising your kids and doing your job, that's not Christianity. It's when you pray for others. It's when you pray for the sick. It's when you pray for the needy. It's when you ask for forgiveness. This is what makes us Christian, is prayer. But Jesus' lesson is not, hey, you guys have messed it up. This place is to be about prayer because Jews who were coming there were certainly coming there to pray. They were coming there to worship. Our hypothetical family who's come from Ephesus with their Lyrans really kind of struggling to get through. They're trying to worship God. They're following the, the laws of, of the faith. It's not that somehow it had ceased to be a house of prayer. It had ceased to be, from Jesus' Jesus's perspective, a house of prayer for all nations. You see, God might have chosen Israel, but he chose Israel, according to Jesus, to be a light to the world. Even the promise to Abraham is that I will make your children a nation and through them I'll bless the world. Right? The faith sometimes gets described in terms of blood and soil, right? These people in this place. But that sense of election only works because it's a utility. God is using it to bless the world. It does have to do with blood and soil only to the extent that it has to do with human beings on planet Earth. But it involves all of us. This is our body politic. Right? This is how we live together. We're to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So what's, what does that mean? So den, like cave or hideout. And the word there for robbers sometimes gets translated thieves. Might best be translated like rebels, like um, revolutionaries. There's only one other place in, in Mark's gospel that that word gets used, and it gets used to describe the two people who are being executed on either side of Jesus. People that the Romans would crucify. The Romans did not crucify Jewish religious leadership for extortion. Not to say that Jewish 
religious leadership maybe never did anything wrong in that regards, but that would not have merited uh, execution. They didn't execute robbers. I mean, they might cut off their hand. They might put them in jail. But they didn't execute them. They didn't crucify them. Crucifixion was capital punishment, and it was saved for capital crimes, for those who would resist Rome, those who would be kind of revolutionaries. When, when the Jewish, this is, so this Jesus event, right, is taking place roughly in about the 30s. About 30 years later is the first Jewish war. And the Jewish rebels that are fighting, trying to kind of free Jerusalem from the Romans, they have a temporary victory in the mid-60s. And the first thing they do is go to the temple and they burn the records of debt, right? They didn't want anybody to know, that, particularly they didn't want the Romans to know who owed what because they thought it was an illegitimate bill, right? Jews should not owe Romans anything. And so that's what they did. And interestingly, they, they lost that war. And when the temple burnt uh, in 70, and it was destroyed by the Romans, the Roman general marched into the sanctuary, past the outside door where there's the altar of burnt sacrifice, past the holy place where there was the kind of the candelabra and um, or the lampstand and the table of the showbread and the altar of incense into what was called the holy of holies. And it's like, look, I knew it. There's nothing here. There is no Jewish God. And there was nothing there in a real sense, Right? It's an empty space. There's no statue. There's no you know, great um, depiction of Apollo or Aphrodite. Because as Hebrews tells us, the God we serve is a God whose image cannot be formed by hands. There's this wonderful presence of the emptiness, that kind of empty center. It's what... The Jewish faith has taught us all along that our God is beyond our scope of observation. A quick note, uh, we'll close in prayer today uh, and we'll pray for the synagogue in Pittsburgh where the terrorist attack took place this week. Their faith might not be our faith, but our God is the creator of all. And there's this, there's this way in which sometimes uh, Karl Barth would say, we know when we think we know when we pray, but we don't know whether God's listening. But Jesus will kind of flip that on its head in this next passage that we're getting ready to look at, where it will say, um, God, we, um, excuse me, it'll flip it on its head, and we will know that God is there, but we won't know whether or not we're truly praying. Because true prayer requires forgiveness. So let's, 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 let's hurry up and get there. What's happening in the next passage. So Jesus has uh, not just, cur he's cursed the fig tree. And sometimes we call his action in the temple a cleansing of the temple. Even our Bibles will call it that in a little subheading. Not in the text itself, but in the little you know, heading above the uh, paragraphs. But I think that's, that's a misnomer. It's not a cleansing of the temple. 
Jesus is not trying to refurbish the temple and say, don't, don't make animal sacrifices this way. Don't do your kind of um, reserved, nationalistic, you know, us, not them, this way. You know, clean it up and look like this. He's cursing the fig tree and he's cursing the temple. And then the next passage, we see what's happened to a cursed fig tree. It says this in verse 20. In the morning... This is the morning after the the temple action. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received and it will be yours. Whenever you are standing, forgive. And if you forgive anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. The the Gospel of Mark doesn't have the Lord's Prayer. You can find it in Matthew and Luke. So in Mark, we never get the phrase, Our Father. In fact, this is the only place in Mark's Gospel where God is referred to as Father, and he's referred to as your Father. Jesus is saying that God is your Father, and we know this when you forgive, because your Father is a forgiver. And when you forgive, we know that you are behaving like your father. And so that prayer, real prayer, is rooted in that kind of activity, right? Forgiveness. So this this idea of this mountain, um, it is a phrase that was used of rabbis. They were called uh, mountain movers, um, the idea behind it wasn't that they were great at excavation or like building roads or something, but th- the rabbis were called mountain movers because they could uh, solve difficult problems. Um, so perhaps that's behind this text. Sometimes I think we read it and it says, if you say to this mountain, and we take the idea of mountain to be whatever problem I have in my life, right? So you just think of, you know, whatever you're up against. That's your problem. You say to it, you know, God remove it and it gets removed. But in this case, contextually, there's something much clearer that comes into focus. They were standing on a place called the Temple Mountain. The Temple Mount. Jesus has cursed it. If you say to this mountain, what mountain? The Temple. Be thy removed and thrown into the sea. If the temple ceases to exist, then how will we get forgiveness? I mean, there had already been this kind of domestication of the temple with the synagogue. You know, people living here, there, and everywhere, not being able to make it to Jerusalem so often. And so the faith, the Jewish faith, had already shifted from a primarily cultic faith where you did animal sacrifice towards a more textual faith, where textual faith, where you would pray and obey the Torah and kind of stay in your synagogue. So that that shift was already starting to take place. But Jesus kind of ramps that up because the very presence of Jesus makes the temple redundant. It's not as though forgiveness was a new concept to the Jews. 
They had always understood that God was a forgiver and that forgiveness was available. And they had a system whereby that was kind of established, right? The animal sacrifice. But what Jesus is saying now is if you want forgiveness, even if the temple doesn't exist, all you got to do is ask your father. And the only thing your father will expect of you in return is not something you give to him, but something you then in turn give to others. You see, God saves us, not just so that we can be saved, but God saves us so that then we can be agents of God's salvation. Forgiveness is a quintessential Christian practice. This is why when we come to the table, we receive forgiveness. But this is, as, as Bonhoeffer would say, this is no cheap grace. At Oasis, everyone is welcome to the table. The table is open as the table of Jesus was open. And he opened it to religious leaders. He opened it to prostitutes. He opened it to um, tax collectors. He opened it to everyone. So everyone can come to the table. But again, to go back to Bonhoeffer, this is no cheap grace. This isn't just come and receive forgiveness. This is come be forgiven and become a forgiver. Again, Augustine would say to his congregation, uh, behold who you are and become what you receive. Those were the words of communion. Behold who you are, but become what you receive. And what you receive is the body and blood of Christ. What you receive is the forgiveness of God. And you too now can become like your father. You can become a forgiver. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.